um, Acts 26, we're looking at verses 24 through 29. If you remember, Paul has given this speech. He's been given an opportunity to defend his life um, for the third time here. He's before the Roman governor Festus, and he's also before uh, Herod Agrippa, who is essentially like a Jewish king who had authority in the region of Judea. He's before these men, and uh, the purpose of this meeting is Festus is a Roman and a pagan who has no clue about Jewish theology, and there's this case with this guy named Paul who has been accused of doing these horrible things, but there's no evidence that he's done anything at all, and yet everybody wants to kill him, and he doesn't understand. So he brings Agrippa in, and Agrippa is more familiar, is Jewish, is more familiar with with Jewish theology and culture and customs, and so he's listening to Paul and hearing him out, and then he's going to give his opinion of the case to Festus, who's going to write a letter to Caesar in Rome, because that is where Paul has appealed his case, and that is where Paul is going. Um, At the end of the speech, if you look with me, look at verses 22 and 23. Let's read the end of the speech. Or at least the end of Paul's sentence, because you'll see why it became the end of the speech. 22. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And then Festus interrupts, and we're going to get to that in just a second. You know, one of the purposes of our church, I would say probably the main reason that we exist and that God has placed us here together is to make disciples of Jesus who love God and others. That, that's why we're here. We are disciples of Jesus. We are followers of Jesus. Our task together in this life is to grow together, but we're not just growing together. We are also making more disciples. That, that is why we exist. That is why we're here. Um, if we succeed in this task, in this mission, what it will look like is the gospel and the glory of God will keep spreading just as we have seen it spread throughout the book of Acts. Have you noticed that? I'm really going to hit this in two weeks. But I marvel at where we are in, in the story of Acts. Do you remember Acts chapter 1? In Acts chapter 1, the Christian community was a small group of like 100 people. Like just 100 people, like just waiting. And Jesus had just ascended into heaven. And there they are, just camped out together, having no idea what they're supposed to do. And do you realize, I mean, the significance of this, Paul is preaching the gospel of Jesus in Acts 26 to Roman officials, and he's about to go to Caesar, where he will testify there to the glory of God expressed through Jesus the Messiah. It's remarkable how the gospel and the glory of God have spread through the book of Acts. If we get on board with this mission, we will see the glory of God and the gospel spread in our lives and spread in our city as more and more people come to faith in Jesus. Now, if we're going to not just talk about that, but actually do it, because that's, that's what I want to see. I don't want us to just talk about reaching our city for Jesus. That's a great thing to say. It gets everybody pumped up. We're going to reach this city for Jesus. I'm going to reach my family. I'm going to reach my friends for Jesus. If we're going to actually start doing it, and start seeing people reach with the gospel, we're going to be required to persuade people 
of the gospel's truth and relevance. And that's what we see Paul doing here at the end of Acts 26. He persuades. Even in Tupelo, a heavily church city. We've got two churches right back here. Whoop, two of them right over there. And then there's a third one you can't see, but it's right, it's right over there too. Lots of them. Heavily churched area. Even in this city, we would be gravely mistaken to assume that most people we meet on a daily basis know the real Jesus. It's a mistake to assume just because there's lots of churches in this area and a lot of people know the name of Jesus that everyone we meet knows Jesus. And more than that, we would be mistaken at this moment in history to assume that people who don't know Jesus will on their own, of their own initiative, start seeking him in the church. Those days may be past even for this area where you have someone on their own, of their own initiative saying, you know, I'm really interested in, in Jesus and Christianity. I need to go to church on Sunday. It, it's it's going to become less and less common. So reaching people for Jesus in Tupelo is not as simple as it used to be. And if we're going to effectively reach our city for Jesus, meaning that we're going to see people in Tupelo, in our neighborhoods, in our families who don't know Jesus, come to faith in him, we can't just rely on people walking in off the street on a Sunday morning and then hearing the gospel preached from the pulpit or seeing it in the Lord's Supper. I would love for that to be true, and that's why I think it's important for us to invite people here because you have such a beautiful and clear display of the gospel, not just clear words about the gospel, hopefully clear, but you see it. You see it in the people. You see it in our love for one another. You see it in the community. You see it in, in you know, the, the uh, ordinances like the Lord's Supper or baptism. And we want them here. But they're not going to, most likely, of their own initiative, come here seeking for Jesus, which means we need to go to them. And, and it's easy to say that. And then when you start thinking about it, you're like, go to them. What does that even mean? I have to go to work tomorrow. I mean, what am I supposed to do? Just start walking around to everybody on my street and start knocking on doors and, you know, asking them if they've ever heard of Jesus and open it, going into conversations? That doesn't seem really practical. No. We, we, need, we need to learn something this morning. We need to learn the art of gospel persuasion. Because Paul does something here in this passage. It's real short. I mean, it's a short passage. And he addresses two people who are very different from each other in two very different ways with the same goal in mind to persuade them to believe in Jesus. In an ordinary moment, he wasn't even planning on doing this. He's interrupted by Festus and then boom, boom. Persuade, persuade. He knows the art of gospel persuasion and we need to learn it. Gospel persuasion is the art of convincing others through appropriate strategies to become as we are, sinners saved by grace. Now, becoming effective at gospel persuasion is going to require us to shift the way that we think about sharing the gospel and evangelism. Sharing the gospel habitually and effectively requires us to stop thinking of evangelism as an optional task for a few gifted people, and it requires us to stop thinking of lost people as if they're just a homogenous group. We have people who are saved and people who are lost. How do we reach the people who are lost as if they're just this group of people? And we have to, we have to stop thinking of it in those, in those terms. We need to know first 
who, <coughs> sorry, who we are. This is so emotional, guys. Um, um, we need to know who we are as disciple makers, and we need to know where others are in relation to Jesus. And we see an example of gospel persuasion here. With conviction and with wisdom, Paul works at the end of this final hearing before these authorities to persuade Festus and Agrippa to believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world, the Messiah. Now, what I want us to do is to to take these two men, their reactions to Paul and his speech, his gospel, and observe how Paul interacts with each of them. Um, we, so, so essentially what I want to do is show you two things by doing that. First, I want to show you that gospel persuasion is not a, ta- a task to be performed. Gospel persuasion is identity-based. We need to consider why we should be working to persuade other people to believe in Jesus. Why do we do that? We do it because of who we are. It's identity-based. And second, we need to, to think through how we can do it. So why we do it and how we do it. Why do we persuade others to reach them for the sake of Jesus? And then how? Okay, first, why? Gospel persuasion is identity-based. Why do we persuade others? Well, really simply, we persuade others to believe in Jesus because that's who we are in Jesus now. We are disciple makers. Do you think of yourself like that? You are a disciple maker. Not because you attended a training or you went to a class or you're a really relational person. You are a disciple maker because Jesus has made you a disciple. That's who you are now. Um, I, I think about when I was in late middle school and high school. This is a little embarrassing. Um, I, I didn't just play basketball, all right? I was a baller, all right? You with me? <laughs> a baller. And, and if you're not, okay, maybe, maybe you need to be from, from Kentucky to appreciate it. I don't know. Um, but there is a difference in playing basketball and being a baller. There is a culture and an identity, a persona, it's, uh, okay, for example, I was a baller. It was, it was who I was. And that doesn't mean I was the greatest, like, basketball player in the area, like, oh, man, it's a ball. No, I was a baller. Like, me and, me and my boys, we were ballers, you know? So here's what that meant. I woke up just a little earlier um, on weekday mornings before going to school so I could go outside and get a few shots in, you know? It's like every morning. Every morning you wake up, shoot some free throws, you know, right beside the house on the goal that's, that's sitting there at the edge of this massive hill, you know, and you just, you become a good shooter that way because you don't want to run after the ball down the hill. Um, so, so, you know, I would do that. Uh, uh, you know, I, whenever I would get ready for school, my mom, she would hate, she hated what I would wear to school because it was every day of the year, it did not matter, three, six, five, like I'm wearing a hoodie and basketball shorts, Every day, the temperature does not matter. Hoodie and ball shorts, you know, and the shorts culture. This is early 2000s, you know what I'm saying? Allen Iverson, okay? The shorts are like halfway down almost to my ankles, you know? They're shorts. They look, my mom would say I was wearing capris and say, you don't understand, you're not a baller, you know? It's what ballers do. It's who we do. I, I, why did I do all these really weird things? So it's who I was. 
It was the identity that I took on. I did all that stuff because, because I was a baller. Hey, listen, this is the most embarrassing, all right? I'm sorry, I have to share this. Rap music, right? Um, I was the last person looking at me, and you're looking at me right now, and you're like, you don't really strike me as someone who would be listening to rap music. Oh, I was a baller. You don't understand, you know? I had this, I had this 2000 Toyota Avalon uh, that my granddad gave me and, uh, uh, whenever I got my license, and I was in high school. And I busted the sound, like busted the speakers because of how loud I would play the music going to school, all right? That's who I was. That's who I was. I did all of those really weird things. Also, one other identity that I, t- I was lame, okay? I, I was really lame. Um, but I did all of those really weird things because it's how I saw myself. I, I was a baller, and I did what ballers did. And so, look, gospel persuasion... Not, you like that segue? Um, gospel persuasion is rooted in our new identity in Jesus. We overthink this. You should be striving and working and thinking and dreaming of ways to persuade other people in your life to believe in Jesus because it's who you are. That's who you are in Jesus. You are a disciple maker. We actually see it in two places here in Acts 26. First, we can say that our identity is as disciple makers because we see it in the example of Paul's life. You remember his speech from last week? He tells the story of how he met Jesus and what happened to him as a result. And when Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, he called this violent oppressor, this violent opponent of his people to become something first. You notice that. He didn't say, hey, Paul, go and do these things. He says, Paul, now you are my witness, and you are my servant. It's, it's subtle, but it's important. He calls him first to an identity. He says, you now are a witness. You now are a servant of, of mine. Not, hey, Paul, I need you to go perform this task. Will you go and witness to me in this area? Hey, Paul, I need you to serve me in this, in this part of the world. Can you go serve me there? Those are tasks that can be completed, and it's almost like taking an oath. Okay, I'm going to take this oath for a while, and as soon as I complete the the task, then I'm done. Paul's never done. Paul constantly is is testifying and witnessing to Jesus everywhere he goes, not because Jesus keeps sending him, you know, uh, uh, missions to complete. It's because it's who he is now. It doesn't matter. Whether he's in an unknown part of the world or he is before Roman authorities, he's going to try to persuade people to believe in Jesus because he owned this identity. Um, there's something else we see here, though. And, and it, it's in what we could say is Agrippa's epiphany. He has this epiphany, and, and I, want you to, I want you to follow it. I'm going to read the whole passage from verse 24, and I want you to catch it and feel it. Feel what King Agrippa says in verse 28. All right, so we'll start in verse 24, but I want you to feel what he says in 28. He says, and he was saying these things in his defense, and as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I'm speaking true and rational words. And then he's like he's pointing to Agrippa. The king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly. I'm persuaded. None of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. 
And look, look what he, it hits him like a ton of bricks. This man is supposed to be defending himself. He's supposed to be explaining to us why he's not guilty of the things he's being accused of. And look what he sees here in verse 28. Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? It hits him. All of a sudden he realizes, this man's trying to convert me. He's trying, he's trying to make me a Christian. It hits him. That's what this is all about. Paul is using this trial, this opportunity to defend himself, to convert us? He noticed that in Paul. You see, Paul would take advantage of every opportunity, whether it's, if you remember earlier in Acts, those conversations that he would have with magicians to a trial before Roman governing authorities. He would, he would, use, there, there was, he would do all of that to share about Jesus. Why? It's who he was. He was a witness. He was a servant. He was a disciple maker. Everywhere and always, there wasn't a circumstance, situation, or person unsuited for Paul to talk about the gospel. Um, we're going to talk about what it looks like here in a second. But right now, it's just crucial for us to understand that gospel persuasion begins with our identity as disciple makers. One of the reasons that we don't talk about Jesus often in our lives is because we do not think of ourselves as having been sent by Jesus on mission. The reason that we don't leverage opportunities or, or situations or conversations or relationships to try to persuade people who don't know Jesus to believe in him, we don't do it because we're not even thinking about, oh man, I guess I could have done that. Because we don't see ourselves as waking up in the morning and being sent out on mission every single day. But we need to start thinking of ourselves like that. We need to start asking the question, what do disciple makers do on a daily basis? What are the habits of a disciple maker? And then embrace that, just like I, I embodied the habits of a baller. You know what I'm saying? I did it because that's who I, how I viewed myself. When we, are, when we view ourselves as, am I good? Okay. When we view ourselves as disciple makers, there I am, when we view ourselves that way, we will start doing the things that disciple-makers do in sharing the gospel. If we embraced our identity as a disciple-maker and we really believed that Jesus had sent us to reach people for him, the way that we think about ordinary days will change. And we will start thinking of ways to put a spotlight on Jesus. I think of a couple, I'm not, I'm not going to um, um, share the names or, or situations, but there are a couple members in the church who have recently shared with me um, and asked me to pray for people that they have been witnessing to. And it, it wasn't like, hey, I decided to go out one day and pass out tracts, and I decided to go out one day and ask people. Ordinary, everyday situations, or ordinary, no, like normal things, and it's like, you know what? I realized I was talking to someone who didn't know Jesus. So I decided to use that opportunity to pray for them. I, I, I talked about my faith with them. This is what it looks like to embrace your identity as a disciple maker. And this is where gospel persuasion begins, knowing who you are. But second, we need to know how we can persuade others. How should we do it? How, how do we persuade other people? Gospel persuasion is not just identity-based. It is others-focused and man this is where we just get all out of whack when it comes to evangelism. When we start trying to answer the question, what should we say when we share the gospel? 
And I would say that that is maybe obstacle number one among Christians who want to share the gospel. So you're sitting here and you're like, yes, that's how I view myself. I'm a disciple maker, but I don't know what to say. If that's where you currently are, I, I can almost guarantee you you won't share the gospel this week. Because you're, you're, you're hung, you're, you're stuck in this, in this confusion of what you should be saying. And you know what we typically want? We want a script. We want someone to write something down for us, show us what to say, give us a formula, give us, give us a way to remember what the gospel is, which isn't a bad thing. None of those are bad things. But it's not sufficient to actually reach people with the gospel. Um, we need to rethink how we approach conversations about Jesus with the people we're trying to persuade. The focus of our attention needs to be less on the specific words that we're, that we're speaking and more on the people that we're speaking with. If, if all you're focused on is like, okay, I know, there's this person at work and they said that they don't believe in Jesus or they're not a Christian. Whew, okay, I need to talk to them about Jesus. And then you obsess over the specific words that you say and you don't think about that person at all. It's not going to be effective. And it's not the way we're meant to reach people. Um, gospel persuasion is others-oriented. Um, if you were to come up to me after the service and say, hey, look, I'm on board. I, I want to start sharing the gospel. Um, I don't know exactly what I need to say, but I'm, I'm all in. Um, I even know of a couple of people I could share the gospel with this month. What should I say to them? I promise you my answer to you is going to be it depends on the person. Who are they? What's their background? What are their experiences? What do they believe? What do you know about them? And answers to those questions will determine what you say to them to try to persuade them to believe in Jesus. You see, the art of gospel persuasion involves developing the skill of contextualizing the gospel without changing it. Contextualization without change. And, and you need to know really two things in order to persuade people to believe in Jesus. Don't complicate it. You need to know two things. Number one, you need to know what the gospel is. You need to know that the gospel is the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You need to know that. And you need to be clear on that. You need to know what the gospel is. And the second thing, you need to know the person you're talking to. Don't have to. You, cold evangelism is not wrong. It's not bad. And it, and it can be effective. Because the gospel, through the power of the Spirit, is what brings a person to sa saving faith in Jesus. But if we're talking about the normal kinds of persuasion and evangelism, it's going to happen within the context of relationships. So you need to know the gospel, but you also need to know the person that you are evangelizing. You see, Paul is persuading two very different types of people after his speech is interrupted to believe in Jesus, Festus and Agrippa. And even though it's brief, he uses two very different approaches that we're going to look at right now to try to persuade them. So here's what we're going to do the rest of our time together. We're going to use Festus and Agrippa as paradigms of two kinds of people that we might encounter in our lives. Two kinds of people that you might encounter in Tupelo, at work, in your, in your family, potentially, 
in your friend group, in your neighborhood. Two kinds of people. And listen, I'm using labels just to give us language to think about it. I don't like labels. So don't go and be like, oh, that's my secular friend right there. Like, don't do that, all right? Like, you're probably not going to have a shot at persuading them of much at that point. Um, but we're going to think of two different types of people. First, the secular person. The secular person. And second, the religious person. The secular person and the religious person. Um, Paul engages with the secular person. He engages with a religious person. And we are going to, throughout you know, our, our lives, encounter both people. And both people are in need of Jesus and need us to persuade them. Let's, let's think about each of them and look at how Paul interacted and what we can learn from it. So first, a secular person. Um, this is Festus. Now, a secular person is, is really, when I say that, it's, it's just someone who doesn't consider themselves to be religious. Okay? They, they, I don't mean like the, just a horrible, awful, you know, morally bankrupt person. Uh, it's, it's just someone who doesn't consider themselves religious. So they might be atheistic. They might be agnostic. Um, what's more likely to be true of them is that they're in one of two groupings um, that, that at least Christian sociologists will, will identify. The duns and the nuns, all right, and that's N-O-N-E-S, not, not, you know, not the, you know, Catholic nuns. Like we don't, you can, feel free, if you want to ministry to reach the nuns, I mean, that's fine, but um, we're talking about a different group. The duns and the nuns. Now, the duns are the people who have been hurt in church. They grew up in church, they went to church, they, they considered themselves to be believers, and something happened to them in the church, and so they have, le- they have since left, and they are no longer in the church. They are done. They're 100% out. They're done with it. And, and so th- they would fall in this category, someone who is completely done. The other is none, and they don't care. They're not, they don't, they're not atheist. They're not agnostic. They're not Christian, and they don't care. If, if they, the reason they're called nuns is if they were filling out a religious affiliation survey, they would check the box, none. Okay, so these are the types of people who would fit into this group, and both of those groups are increasing across the country and, and will continue to in this area as well. Now, some of these people grew up in church, in Tupelo especially, and some of them didn't. But what's most common in these groups is that they generally don't have positive views of the church or Christianity. Now, they don't all have negative views of the church or Christianity, but they don't have positive views of either. Um, and, and here's a couple things I want to I highlight about these two groups. First, they usually don't have a solid frame of reference or framework for the gospel. They, they don't know the gospel. They may not even know the word gospel. They may not be familiar at all. Um, they aren't very familiar with the Bible. Okay, they don't know the Bible very well. They may have never touched a Bible, seen a Bible. Uh, there was somebody uh, who would fit this category three or four years ago who lived in Tupelo who visited a service at Trace once. He was a friend of mine. And I talked to him after, and, he, and I didn't know this at the time. First time he had ever been in a church ever in his life. First time he had ever seen a Bible in, in like person, you know, in, in that context, ever. Never heard any of the things, didn't understand why we sang. He was actually and like so anxious the whole time. We were, he was like, why did you guys keep standing up and singing? Like, he was so confused, you know, the whole time. And there are people like that who live here. Something else about this group. If they are familiar with the Bible, or if they are familiar with Jesus, they usually don't have very much respect for either. All right? So they either don't care at all, 
or they actively believe that the Bible is repressive or it's antiquated or it doesn't matter at all or they have serious significant issues with it. Now here's why it's important to know this and, and it's why it's important to know the people that you're trying to evangelize. If there's someone in your life who fits this mold, they're a done or they're a none, uh, you know, any, um, you are going to have very little success persuading them of the gospel by quoting scripture. You just will. If you ask them if they want to study the Bible with you, do you know what they're going to say? No. If you, if you come at them with a bunch of Bible passages, it, it's not going to stick. It's not going to land. We need a different approach. Let's turn to Festus and Paul. Festus fits this mold decently well. He was a Roman. He was a pagan. He knew next to nothing about the Jewish scriptures. And he knew nothing about Jewish or Christian theology. He didn't believe in, in the resurrection. And he thought it was all really silly. And listen, at this point, Festus is so sick and tired of hearing about messiahs and prophets and Moses and Jewish scriptures and all that the man is just trying to do his job is he guilty of the accusations or not can I please be done with this he has no frame of reference whatsoever so he loses his patience he does he shouts at Paul after Paul says in verse 23 that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles he loses it and he says Paul you are out of your mind. After hearing Paul explain how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament by dying and rising from the dead for our salvation, Festus concludes that Paul is crazy, just insane. Now, there's a lot of background to this because notice what he says next. So he says, um, uh, your great learning is driving you out of your mind. This is actually a very common insult uh, that would be hurled at philosophers and scholars in the era. So... Um, it's almost a backhanded compliment because it's, it's pointing out that Paul is really strong and really competent as a philosopher and as a scholar. So, so basically at this time, philosophers who presented new ideas or new concepts, they were sometimes accused of being out of touch with real life, that they had just retreated to their ivory towers and they had come up with all this philosophy. They're coming down to the masses to share it and it's like, dude, where have you been? Like, your head is in the clouds. You are so out of touch. You don't have a lick of common sense anymore. I, I, think, I think, too, of, of Festus here. He, he's almost like criticizing the guy in Bible study. You know, you're in a Bible study group, and the guy just can't see the plain meaning of the passage. He has to be like, no, 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 there's something deeper here. There's something deeper. And it starts like this big web of, you know, connection starts to form, and, and you're like, dude, no. Like, you're, you're losing touch. Like, this is, this is a lot simpler. Festus is basically saying, Paul, you are too smart for your own good, and you need a dose of common sense. He, he looks at Paul and he says, oh, baby, bless your heart. Bless your heart, this poor man, this poor man. Your study has made you out of touch with the real world because even though that logic makes sense in your head, and you think Jesus is some fulfillment of some prophecy, yada, 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 that happened in the past and all that. My man, common sense tells us that people don't rise from the dead. 
So I'm glad it works in your holy book, but that it's not possible for a person to rise from the dead. Now, at this moment, how much success would Paul have with Festus if he said, no, no, Festus, you don't understand. Let me, let me walk you through the scriptures and take you to Isaiah and show you. That's already, it's not a category for Festus. He doesn't believe in those scriptures. He thinks it's nonsense. He thinks it's just, it's just a bunch of, you know, in the clouds philosophy. So how does Paul respond to him? Well, he doesn't keep talking about the scriptures. That's what he had been doing, right? His speech is interrupted. He had been talking about the scriptures heavily, but he doesn't keep doing that. He reasons with Festus. He looks at Festus and he says, okay, but look at the evidence. Look what he literally says in verse 25. I'm not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus, I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. I'm persuaded none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Um, Paul wants Festus to see that Christianity is not some philosophy that was created in an ivory tower. He wants to highlight the rationality of Christianity. He wants Festus to think about the fact that even though it's hard for him to accept resurrection as even a possibility, he wants him to think about the credible witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. He wants him to think about the fact that the church has exploded all over the world. And so Paul doesn't say to Festus, a secular person, no, I'm not crazy. I know in the depths of my heart that Jesus is real and that he is the Savior. I just know it. I just know it. He doesn't say that. And he doesn't say, I know Jesus is the Savior because the Bible says so. He says, Festus, I'm not crazy. Christianity makes sense. Christianity is true because there was a man named Jesus who really died and who really came back from the dead. It really happened. There are witnesses that saw it happen that could testify to it. I saw Jesus with my own eyes. Festus, look at the evidence. Listen, in persuading secular people in our lives who don't care at all about the Bible or theological discussions, we need to point them to the evidence. We need to help, <coughs> help them see the reasonableness of Christianity. We, we need to say to them, look, you may hate the church. You, you may not respect the Bible. You may not even believe in God. But what do you make of the credible evidence that Jesus died and rose again? At minimum, what do you make of the fact that so many people gave their lives telling others that Jesus rose from the dead if it didn't happen? What, what do you make of the explosion of the church? What are the witnesses? What are the evidence? That's, that's how we persuade someone who doesn't take the Bible as an authority in our lives. Um, but there's, there's another type of person that we're going to encounter, maybe more regularly, and it's the religious person. The religious person. Now again, I, I don't love this label, religious person. We could also say a cultural Christian. I, I, don't, I don't like that label either. Um, but basically, it's defining someone who is familiar with the Bible and familiar with basic Christian doctrine. They, they probably grew up in church. They might still even go to church occasionally. 
They identify themselves as Christians. They say they believe in Jesus. And, and, you know, most of the time they do so in the sense that they're saying, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm not a Muslim. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a Christian, I'm not an atheist. And that's usually how they mean it. This type of person usually has a belief that even though they aren't perfect, they are basically good. And in the end, they are counting on their good deeds to outweigh their bad deeds. Very moralistic person. Um, now, what's most important about this group is that they don't generally feel a need for the gospel. So they are actually really difficult to reach with the gospel. Someone who has an awareness of what the gospel is and an awareness of who Jesus is and an appreciation for the Bible, when you are trying to persuade them to believe in Jesus, they think they already do. But they don't, they don't know the real Jesus. Um, Jesus to them becomes kind of like that extra, you know, summer job that you picked up just to add to your resume to make it look good. It's like, you know, I, I do a lot of really good stuff. Hey, I, I actually like Jesus too. You know what I'm saying? I believe, I believe in Jesus. And it's just like an add-on for them. Now, there's good news and there's bad news when it comes to persuading this type of person to believe in Jesus. And the good news is it's very easy to start a conversation. Very easy. If you want to start talking about Jesus with someone who has a lot of familiarity with the Bible, it's, it's really easy to do. You have a lot of common ground. You can take them straight to the Bible. And, and so starting gospel conversations with a religious person is, is easier than starting them with a secular person. But the bad news is, it is much harder to help them see their need for Jesus. And sadly, the reason for that is because some of their distorted beliefs were confirmed or taught in the church. Listen, Agrippa fits this mold pretty well. Agrippa was very different from Festus. Um, he was a descendant of Herod the Great. He, he had authority from the Romans to rule in the Judean region. Agrippa was essentially Jewish, and Agrippa was familiar, very familiar with Moses and the prophets. He knew the Old Testament pretty well. He believed in the future resurrection of the dead. Agrippa was a religious person similar to cultural Christians today in the sense that he was religious because it served him well and it didn't cost him very much. Now, when Paul addresses Agrippa, he, he focuses on the common ground that they share. You know, he, he had been basically addressing Agrippa throughout the speech. He's talking to Agrippa. Remember at the beginning of the speech? That's who he's addressing. He's mainly talking to King Agrippa. But here at the end, Paul turns to him specifically, and he does it for reinforcement. I want, you to, I want you to follow this. So Festus has accused Paul of being crazy. He's like, you're outside your mind. You're outside your mind, Paul. Paul says, no, I'm not. You know, I'm saying rational, you know, rational truths. And then he points to the king, and he's like, hey, <clears throat> you think, I'm sorry, you think I'm crazy? You think I'm crazy? Look at the king. He believes what I believe. The king believes in the prophets, don't you, king? Don't, don't you, Agrippa? Look what he says. He says, the king knows about these things. I speak to him boldly. And then he says in 27, King Agrippa, you believe the prophets, don't you? I know that you believe. Look, he puts Agrippa in a really, really bad spot. It's, it's a genius persuasion tactic. He, he looks to Agrippa as if to say, hey, king, back me up on this. You believe the prophets, right? He thinks I'm crazy talking about how Jesus is the Messiah who was raised from the dead. 
but you believe the prophets just like I do. And they prophesied that there would be a Messiah who would come and suffer and then die and then, and then die and then be raised from the dead. And Jesus did all those things. You know about it. Tell him. Tell him, Agrippa. Um, and Agrippa can't answer that question. He can't. That's why he evades it. He can't answer that question because he, if he says, no, I don't believe the prophets, he's denying the prophets, and he can't do that. If he says, yes, he understands what Paul's doing. Paul would then say, okay, then, if you believe the prophets and, and the foretelling of the Messiah who would come, and you know what Jesus did, then you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, don't you, Agrippa? And Agrippa doesn't, he doesn't want to get into it. So he says, you think that in just a few arguments or in a short amount of time, you can persuade me to be a Christian? You see, Paul sought to persuade Agrippa by saying, Agrippa, my man, look at the scriptures. That book that you respect, that book that, that you're counting on, that you believe in, look again. Look closer and see, Jesus is the Messiah. You see, that tactic doesn't work with Festus. It wouldn't work with him, but it works with Agrippa. And that's why Agrippa gets really uncomfortable. And we have no evidence that Agrippa became a believer. We, don't, we, we actually believe that he did not become a believer. But Paul, in seeking to persuade Agrippa, he uses a very different tactic. And he says, no, 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 look at the Bible. Look at the scriptures. This is so easy for us to do. When we're speaking with religious people in our lives who do not believe in Jesus, who are not believers, one of the best things that we can do for them is to take them through the scriptures. We could tell them, like, you believe Paul, right? Oh, yeah, 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 I believe Paul. You believe Paul. Turn, let's look at Galatians 2. Let's, let's look at Galatians 3. Are you counting on your own obedience or your good works to save you? If you're doing that, then you are nullifying the cross of Christ. Look, Paul says it, not me. You respect Paul. You trust the Bible? This is God's word. Look, look what it says. Your good deeds will never outweigh your bad deeds. That will never save you. You can't save yourself. And we take them to the scriptures. You believe the gospels, right? And we, you know, go from there. You see, these are people that you could start a Bible study with easily. They would come. They would come. Maybe, maybe they're not in a place where they want to go to church right now. But they, they respect the Bible. They, they'll, they'll, they'll read and study the Bible with you. If they're not connected to a local church, they might even visit with you. Invite them. If you have someone in your life who, who you consider, you know, don't call them this, but if you consider them to be religious, but, but maybe they don't know Jesus, invite them to church. They, they'll come. They'll come with you. They, they respect it. Um, gospel persuasion is others-oriented. It's identity-based. That's why we do it. And how we do it depends on the people that we're evangelizing. It's others-oriented. You and I will be much more effective and regular in gospel conversations when we focus more on the people we're trying to reach than the specific words that we need to say. Paul didn't have anything planned here. He, he was presented with, you know, words from these men, and he responded accordingly based on his knowledge of who they are and where they are in relation to Jesus. So let me leave you with just a few suggestions. I hope you're thinking to yourself, I can do this. I know someone right now that I could, I could talk to them about Jesus. 
Um, here, here are a few suggestions. First, if you're trying to persuade someone to believe in Jesus, regardless of who they are, whether they're secular or religious, be genuinely interested in who they are. Be genuinely interested in them. Think, think about them. Um, ask them more questions than they ask you. Be curious, interested. They, they may say that they believe something really wacky. That's interesting. Why do you believe that? Be, be interested in who they are and what they believe. Um, second, keep redirecting to Jesus. Because I can't tell you, I, I'm, in, I'm in gospel conversations quite a bit um, um, in, in Tupelo. And something that happens almost every single time is the, the conversation just starts to spiral out of control. And they'll start talking about the church. So let's say that their thing is they've been hurt by the church. No matter what we talk about, whether we're talking about the gospel or Jesus, something always spins back around to the hurt that they've experienced from the church. And you know what I try to do every single time? Spin it right back. And I'll use what they said. I hate that you've been hurt by the church. Jesus, Jesus does not want that. He doesn't want that. That's not what he died for. You see, Jesus died on the cross and he, he was raised from the dead to create a new people that would live in a community together that's full of love and grace. But you see, I didn't just answer their concern about, about how bad the church can be. I'm pointing to what Jesus did on the cross and in, in the empty tomb. So keep redirecting to Jesus. Third, really important, by the way, be a Christian. Be a Christian. Be kind. Love them. Don't, don't lose your mind on them. If they want to engage in a, in a vicious debate, disengage and finally pray 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 for the people in your lives that you know don't know Jesus pray for opportunities to persuade them pray that the Lord would give you the words to say when those moments arise and pray for their salvation now now look um, we're going to come to the table in a few minutes we're going we're gonna to take the Lord's Supper together as a church if you're not a member you, you're um, free to participate with us. We just ask that you uh, not participate if you are not a Christian. When we come to the table, we remember what Jesus did on our behalf. And as we come to the table this Sunday, I want us to remember the whole point of gospel persuasion. Why are we trying to persuade people to believe the gospel? Well, the point is reaching people for Jesus. That's why we exist as a church, to advance his gospel. Gospel persuasion is Christ-centered. And ultimately, we are called to persuade other people to believe in Jesus because it is only through the broken body and shed blood of Jesus that we can have forgiveness of sins. It's not enough to persuade someone to agree with us on a theological or biblical or ethical issue. That's not what we want to persuade them to. We want to persuade them to believe in Jesus. When you're talking to people about Jesus, you may learn, wow, we really don't see this issue or that issue or that issue the same at all. We may not be best friends. That's not the goal. The goal is not to win a friend. The goal is to reach them for Jesus, to persuade them to believe in him. We want to persuade them that 